0: Few people know God and knew God like the prophets. There were folks in Israel's time, probably a lot like you, they heard things about God. They had maybe been in celebrations where folks were testifying. They were no doubt a singing nation, so uh, the Psalms proves that. They, they sang about God, but, but the average Hebrew, the, the Jewish citizen, they didn't know God like the prophets. The prophets knew God. Let me tell you why. Listen very carefully. The prophets knew God because it changed their lifestyle. It altered how they lived. For instance, Jeremiah. He wrote an Old Testament book. He was a prophet during the reign of certain kings. Did you know that during that time of Jeremiah's life, God called Jeremiah... To relay to the nation of Israel his sadness over their waywardness. And so for most of Jeremiah's ministry, he was involved in a, and I'll say it like this, a weeping ministry. He was known in fact as the what? The weeping prophet. He shed many tears. Was that his normal life? Was that what he asked for? No, but... It was his calling to relate to the nation of Israel, watch this, God's sadness over their waywardness. And so his lifestyle showed the nature of God. That God is broken when we sin and when we stray. That God's heart is, is, is saddened when his people stray away. And, and Jeremiah lived that out. God's character changed his lifestyle. Someone even more dramatic is Hosea. And I'll say this, and you'll probably have some seriously weird thoughts. I encourage you to read Hosea. Hosea had to relay to the nation of Israel just how displeased God was with their spiritual adultery. The nation was involved in idolatry, and, and, and they were committing spiritual adultery. So, in, in an, an incredibly odd situation, God commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute. Read Hosea. It's an incredible story of a man who altered his life and showed the nation of Israel just how awful it must be to be God right now. And I use that phrase in this way. To have the nation of Israel committing spiritual adultery, spiritual immorality on you. And folks would say, Hosea, what's up with you? What's going on? He'd say, how do you think God feels? Are you, are you see what I'm saying guys the, the, the prophets would alter their life in order to relay the nature of God to the nation of Israel that's what they did so nobody knew God better than the prophets and then there's Isaiah the prince of prophets turn there would you his book the one that bears his name is in the Old Testament turn to Isaiah chapter 1 would you Isaiah was the kind of prophet that was probably head and shoulders above other prophets. And I use that probably more in a human way to kind of explain his prominence in the culture. He prophesied for about 50 years. He was married, had two kids. So he's somewhat like us, and yet... His role, unlike Micah, his role was to be a very prominent voice for God in the middle of kings and nations. And right in the middle of of great military leadership, Isaiah's role was to prophesy in their face, so to speak. In fact, Isaiah 1-1 lays out for us his prophecy and and what these 66 books contain. Look at Isaiah 1-1. I'll just read this simple verse to you. And we'll talk a bit about the overview of the book for a moment. But it says here that the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Do you see that? These 66 chapters contain a very focused and specific prophecy about Jerusalem. Which is the capital of the nation of Judah. This vision of course is one that Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Amos was also a prophet. And he saw this vision and proclaimed these prophecies during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, and Ahaz and Hezekiah who were the kings of Judah. And it was Isaiah's role, listen very carefully, to be God's spokesperson and explain and exclaim to people who were listening, especially these kings, that in the midst of military threats national alliances, superb military powers, when everything around you seems to be uh, more trustworthy than God, Isaiah had a simple prophecy that he lays out in 66 chapters. Trust to God. He alone is faithful. Let me give you a backdrop for that statement. King Ahaz was the one king during Isaiah's prophecy that had to endure the rise of the Assyrian Empire. And uh, so much so that they threatened King Ahaz and instead of listening to Isaiah and trusting the Lord, he made alliances and and did wrong in the sight of the Lord and, and disobeyed Isaiah's prophecy. The same thing with Hezekiah. When Hezekiah was about to make a fatal mistake and align himself with national countries like Egypt and so forth, Isaiah said, no, just trust the Lord. In fact, we know that Hezekiah at one point did repent and prayed for more years in his life and at that point turned around, so to speak. You see, Isaiah was consistently saying to kings, he would say, listen, I know the tendency is to trust what's around you. The national powers, the military superpowers, the things you see. But instead, trust the Lord. He alone is faithful. In fact, verses like what's found in Isaiah 40. Remember Isaiah 40? Isaiah 40:31 says that it is God who helps the ones who are walking not to faint. It is God who gives us wings like eagles. You remember those verses? It's verses like that that, are, that dot Isaiah. And it shows us that Isaiah's one goal was to speak to kings. And say, resist the tendency to trust what you see. And instead, trust the Lord. He alone is faithful. In fact, there are many scholars who think that Isaiah's prophecy is considered the Hebrews and the James of the Old Testament. A book that really centers on the faithfulness of God and the responsibility we have. To trust him and him alone. Do you know that Isaiah is the longest of the prophecies in the Old Testament? And also, he's the most quoted in the New Testament. So when we call him the prince of prophets, there's no doubt that he kind of stands head and shoulders above others. In fact, history records that Isaiah had a number of protégés. And somewhere in the interlude, there's a historical interlude in Isaiah, chapters about 36 through 39, in which we have much about Hezekiah's reign. It's assumed and somewhat historically documented that during that historical time, he would gather around these protégés, he would gather them around him, and he would teach them what it meant to stand for the Lord and prophesy to kings, even when they didn't listen. Isaiah was a man's man. And he altered his life. Because of God's character, He went into arenas and palaces and environments where most folks would would probably say things to appease the listener, but He spoke the truth in spite of what perhaps was uh, apparently on the surface. That was Isaiah's role. And these 66 chapters drip with how He envisioned um, the prophecies to come in the historical time, and they just are simply wet with Isaiah's picture of God and here's why look at Isaiah 6.1 I showed you Isaiah 1.1 1, 1. look at Isaiah 6.1 just briefly Isaiah could write in this way he could explain that that they should be faithful to God he could minimize all the nations he could show the finiteness of every man involved because he had seen God in all of his glory look at Isaiah 6.1 It says here in the year that King Uzziah died. Most believe that probably Isaiah. It was in the latter years of King Uzziah's reign. That Isaiah began to prophesy. It says here that at this moment he saw the Lord. Would you underline those four words? I Saw the Lord. And let me just say to you first, family, and you can amen and agree on this, I know. When that happens, when we see the Lord, guess what? All the big superpowers, all the national leaders, all the things that we think are threatening or, or looming, nothing seems to look big when you see God. Amen. That's why Isaiah could write 66 chapters. Encouraging kings and citizens alike to be faithful to Jehovah God. Because you know why? He had seen him. He had witnessed to God in the text here in Isaiah 6 we'll cover in a few weeks. Today my only goal is to kind of give you an overview, a snapshot. He says that he saw God holy and lifted up. And by the way, as God was holy and lifted up, Isaiah took a low place of repentance. There's some teaching there, isn't there? About two weeks will be in Isaiah six. As God is lifted up, we should find ourselves brought low in repentance. And the result of that was Isaiah's obedience, just to say, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you mean to go? And, and God gave him a charge, and he said, Here am I, send me. When we get a real picture of God, when we see God as He really is, our only response is, Yes, Lord, I'm there. You got it. Which makes me wonder. Listen, first family, very carefully. If many of us really know God. This was painfully brought home to me a couple of weeks ago. I was in Branson with our family. Took some time away and nothing against you guys. but had a great time on vacation though. We left it after Christmas and we had received a free trip to Branson. You know how we got that, don't you? Because we were going down there to endure that timeshare presentation, okay? All of you who are groaning, you endured yours, didn't you? I know, okay. So we thought, hey, let's give it a shot. We never have. So we go down there, and we had a great time. We were there a few days, and, you know, they, they kind of flatter you, give you some free food, they give you a free place to stay, and and so we were just kind of hung out and did a few things and enjoyed being together, played some games. But in the course of that, I have to endure this presentation, me and my wife, you know, and you've got to prove all these things. So we go early one morning to get it out of the way, right? Well, to be quite frank with you, we really enjoyed the presentation. We didn't buy anything, but we enjoyed watching the salesman. He was very good. Um, He was humble. He was funny. And he was a Christian. In fact, oddly enough... (laughs) Everyone in the room was a Christian. I was shocked. There was a room of about 26 couples, over 50 people in this room. Outside of the, of the room there was another long hallway, probably, I don't know, 50 to 70 a little desks with a salesman and the, and the couple. So there was well over 100 couples in this building, each with a wonderfully enticing salesman, you know. We were part of the large group. So this guy keeps talking and, and he just does a really good job and I'm probably more intrigued with how he's working the crowd and how he's communicating than anything. And in the course of his talk, uh, he mentions God a lot. You know, and, he, and he asks for us to write down the three things that are most important to us on this piece of paper. And so we're thinking, well, he probably wants us to write down family at some point. So he can then say, well, what better way to love your family than to buy a $24,000 piece of property and come here so many weeks a year. And you know how that spiel goes, right? So uh, we thought, well, we'll just kind of go with it. We wrote down family. And then he started taking responses. Hey, what would you write down, he would say. Now get this. Out of the 26 couples in there, that's about what there were. Out of the 26 couples in that room... Twenty-five of them put God as number one. I mean he actually went around and said, what'd you write down? And they were saying, God, country, and family, or God, family work, or, or God, family, country. They, they had all these different answers, but every twenty-five of twenty-six said God first. So here's the speaker. Obviously, uh, you know, he was a Christian at a period. He's, he's talked about it a lot. All the folks in the room put God as number one, except for one person. He actually put health as first. But he seemed like a good guy, of course, you know. So I'm sitting there, and I'm really struck by this. Like, wow, we're in a room full of people who who say God is their number one uh, priority. That I, I felt right at home. This is awesome. And then, as the presentation went on, I, I was struck by this fact that one of the couples kind of joked about the fact that they couldn't remember much about last weekend because they were too drunk I thought oh that's odd that's interesting the God of the Bible says do not be drunk with wine but that wasn't a big deal to you apparently but of course they listed God as number one then another couple was living together they were there to check out the free stuff too kind of like we were marriage wasn't that big of a deal to them they liked the benefits of marriage, three letters, S-E-X. Are you with me? But but the idea of following God's order just didn't appeal to them. Of course, they wrote God was number one on their piece of paper. And I noticed and discovered that throughout the room were a lot of people who had some seriously different views of God than, than I had. <laughs> Am I striking a chord with you? Am I making you uncomfortable? Are you Are wondering where I'm going to say next? I found the stark reality that most people live life, listen very carefully to me, based on their biased versions of God. Not on a biblical view of God. And let me just go ahead and be the pastor that I think you know I am. A lot of us are the same way. You can go ahead and kind of shift in your seat, get uncomfortable, it's okay, you can do that. It's getting worse as I go on, trust me. You know we do that, don't we? We create God how we want Him to be based on our current need, maybe a goal we have, and hey, just go ahead and be up front. The pastors are worse than anybody. What's the next building project, the next financial need? Suddenly we're going to create a God that's really interested in that, aren't we? Your family is no different. People are the same. In other words, I think we're in a society where most people really don't know God. They just know their version of God. And they change that to make sure it fits what's going on in their life. The problem with that is, that's not God. You're left with something maybe like a spiritual Santa Claus. You have a need, you fill out a list, he checks it twice and gives it to you. That's what you think God is. Or maybe like a personified or divine ATM. You need something, punch in the right number, secret code, ask him for it, he spits it out. I'll see you next time I have an emergency. Maybe he's nothing more than a spiritual 911. Or maybe he's a nice old man who kind of got things going and leaves you alone. Or maybe he's like this picture right here. Watch.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Keep it down, all right? We got another one, all right? I'll be right back. <sighs> Jeez. Okay, 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 right. I'm God. What do you want? <laughs> uh, all right, hey, 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 get up off your knees and tell me what it is you want, okay? And make it snappy. All right? No, no. Listen here. Michael. Michael, get the telephone, all right? No, I am sick and tired of that phone ringing, okay? Michael. You pick it up, you take a message, alright, you tell him I get back to him in two hundred years, alright, listen up. I'm sorry about that. I don't care who it is, okay? You, you tell him to hold his breath. <sighs> Look, before we get started here, you gotta understand something. I'm God, you're a pest, okay? I'm God. We got that? Good. Alright. Gabriel. Boy, am I glad you decided to show up, pal, huh? Oh yeah, you're late. You're 287 years, three hours late, Gabriel. What's your excuse this time, huh? Huh? Hey, whoa, 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 chick, chick, do not interrupt me, okay? I am God, and I am talking to an angel here, okay? Oh, okay, you want to go to the back of the line? Is that what you want to do, huh? Is that what you want? Well, then clam it, okay? And I'll get to you when I get to you. Oh, you know what? Okay. You ever hear this one before? I helps them's that helps themselves. Yeah, yeah, it's in there, all right. I promise you, my book, it's in there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's in there, all right. It's down on the page by the part that says, "Don't be going swimming for an hour after you eat." Okay. <laughs> Deal with it, Gabriel. Gabriel, you listen up here, okay? You know that uh, uh, the weather thing down there, the the warm one, the warm. Yeah global warming global warming all right yeah you want to know why you know the answer to that one okay because it's your responsibility it's driving me nuts all right i want you to take care of that global warming thing all right no 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 don't give me that all right gabriel listen up gabe you got floods over here you got droughts over there you got al gore everywhere okay so why don't you take care of this thing it's driving me up the no don't give me that all right i want it done okay get creative sponges something get out of (laughs) here All right, I'm sorry about that, but listen up. You got six more. Michael, the phone! Get the phone! You got six more seconds. That's all I'm giving most folks, okay? Peter. Peter, what are you doing here? No, 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 no. You are not supposed to be here. Wrong, wrong. You're supposed to be out there monitoring them angels, all right? What is something. Ah! Oh! Gabriel, put the trumpet down. <laughs> You're going to scare somebody down there, give them a heart attack or something, you know what I'm saying? They'll think it's all premature with the left behind and the, you know what I'm saying? All right, just leave it alone, okay? No, listen here, Miles Davis, you can practice your jazz some other time, okay? You're supposed to be working for me today. Get, get out of here. Look, you got five more seconds, all right? So whatever it is, it better be pretty important, all right? So go for it, go. What do you want from me? what, what? 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 whoa 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 what in the name of me um (laughs) let me get this straight his fiance just broke up with you oh and you're feeling lonely Oh, of course he broke up with you, sweetheart. You talk too much, interrupting me left and right. Now listen here, and you listen good, okay? I'm God. I got angels up here. I got a, I got a supervisor with a head full of rock. Doesn't know what he's doing. They're coming together with some kind of cosmic jazz band, and you, you give me boyfriend problems. Oh, you, you know. Listen here. I got hurricanes. I got tornadoes. I got uh, the global warming to take care. I got the New Hampshire primary to worry about! And you come to me with, boy, are you out of your ever-loving God. Now you listen up, all right? Listen to you, chick. I got something to tell you, okay? Your problems don't mean nothing, all right? I'm God. Boyfriend, schmoyfriend. I got a universe to run here, all right? All right? So you, you just beat it. I mean it, all right? You want some amazing grace? I'll show you some amazing grace.
0: No, God's not a manic mechanic either, is He? He's not a cosmic sheriff. He's probably not anything that you thought He was based on perhaps your own version of Him. But here's who Isaiah says He is. He's holy, timeless, transcendent, all-powerful, faithful, loving, truthful, omniscient. He is Jehovah God. See, I would venture to say most of us know God in some way other than perhaps how Isaiah reveals Him. And it's our goal between now and the end of May to know God as He really is. As Isaiah theologically and biblically shows Him to be. And as we come to know God deeper, more fuller, and rightly, our lives will change to show that. Not the other way around. Amen. We don't ask God to alter His nature to accommodate us. We alter our lives to accommodate the character of God. In fact, Isaiah, his 66 chapters reveal at least 14 character traits of God. Now, I've listed them on your worship folder. Will you find that? You got one when you came in, didn't you? Find your worship folder and locate that, would you? I'm not going to read through every one of these. Everyone just take a deep breath and relax. I want you to see, though, kind of the roadmap for our series and how we're going to kind of look at this book. It has historical implications, it has theological significance, but I think superseding all of those is this consistent view that Isaiah gives us of God. It's why he acts like he does in history. It's why then we act like we do, because God is, and then he describes in at least 14 ways the things that that God is. For instance, he's a just God. Talked about in Isaiah 2, 3, and 4. In Isaiah 36-39, to we see he's a responsive God. Later on in the book, towards the end, we see He's a very personal God. Or He's a truthful God. There's a number of traits, and we're going to be looking at each of these, not to create a God that we like, but to understand the God who is, and then to adjust our lives to Him. When we do that, we'll find ourselves somewhat like Isaiah, hopefully, captured by God's character not afraid to adjust or change or do whatever he calls us to do you know why? because we've seen the Lord we know what he's like and because God is we then adjust for instance if you came to know God in the ways mentioned here we'd be different people for instance I think if we really knew God's redeeming nature as talked about in Isaiah chapter 7 through 12 we would act differently Towards broken people. Listen very carefully first family. We're at a precarious place in our church. The room is full. Some of you will change and go to first service next week. Because it's too full for you. Which is probably a good idea. We'll fill up first service. And we're at a precarious place in that. We will become very comfortable. And new people. Watch this broken people, uh, lost people will kind of be an inconvenience. You see, three years ago when we were in Nevin, we started our church, they weren't inconvenient. Man, that's who we were looking for. We were looking to really be God's ambassadors, but we're full now. And you know what? It's just a crowd in the lobby. And I wish their kids would stop crying. And man, they need to get their marriage figured out. And suddenly all the things that you believe so strongly in when we were about 60 people, if you're not careful, it'll just be kind of, you know, well, we're kind of done with that. Excuse me. We're not done. For if we really, if we really understood God's redeeming nature, that He rescues People. That's right. Like the guy that lives next to you who can't seem to figure out how to love his wife. You're right. Like the guy that can't figure out how to get out of financial trouble. Like the woman who can't figure out this or that. You know, God loves the broken people. Just look in the mirror. Amen? God loves broken people. And the minute we see God's redeeming nature, that He is a God of incredible mercy, I think our critical tones... And our judgmental comments and our better-than-thou attitudes will cease. But the problem is, they continue. You know why? Because we really don't know much about God's redeeming nature. We still like to say, well, that's what they deserve. That's what they get. Are you with me? See, I say to you, we probably don't know God like we say we do. He's a God who loves when we really... Weren't very lovely, Romans 5.8. In fact, he loved us so much that he died for us while we were still sinners. You know, I want to say something to you as your pastor. We may lose a few folks over this. I hope you don't leave the church. But it's not right that, you, that certain people gloat or take pride in the fact that they don't know anybody who's lost. It's not good. That you don't know anyone who's got a broken life right now. That, that you can shelter away and protect your life from all the harms of the world. And you can say, man, I am totally secluded from the pagan world. And you think that's the heart of God for His church? I challenge you, as an ambassador of Christ, to get to know the person in your class, teenagers. The person at your job or the person that lives across your street. For a purpose far greater than just having a co or dinner. How about a redemptive relationship? Getting to know someone who's just got a lot of problems, you know. Who better them for them to know than you? If you really know God, that's who they need. Hey, get to know him. Amen. Over a church of people who are holy, yes, and insulated, but not afraid to be in the world, but never of it. If you really knew God's redeeming nature, you'd embrace that challenge. I think if you and I really understood God's sovereign nature, as talked about in chapters 13 through 27 of Isaiah's prophecy, we'd be far less likely to get mad at people. You've heard of those kinds of people, right? They're easily offended, sensitive skin, feelings on their sleeve, you say something to them or Uh, You know, if you don't say something, it just seems like every time you turn around, they're running from relationship to relationship. They're running from church to church, job to job. Nothing ever makes them happy. You know why? Here's a suggestion. They don't really understand the sovereign nature of God. They really believe that, that, Everything that's going on is something personal of them or about them. It's a very self-centered view of life. Guess what? God sets up princes as He takes down kings. He's involved in in, in the redemptive plan of history. And He can take even things that are meant for bad. And He can work them to our good. But sometimes we get tired of God and we don't love Him. Like Romans 8.28 says, He does that for those who love Him, Right? We get frustrated with him, so we just kind of ditch the whole God thing. We don't like that part of him, and we just think the world's out to get us, and we're done with people, and we hide away. I've heard this more than once about small groups. You know that, don't you? I'm really kind of treading this morning. There are people who refuse to be in a smaller group because they're afraid of people, of getting hurt. I'm sure glad Jesus didn't say that as he faced the cross. Can I challenge you to instead of looking at your own little world, To let God be the sovereign God of the universe. Let Him run the world and your life. Be unoffendable. When God is that big, you know, you'll be surprised how what He said or what she didn't say or what they did just really won't matter that much. Amen? The reason we're so easily offended is because we have a little God. You let God be who the Bible claims Him to be. You let Him be who Isaiah lays out for us. You won't live in fear of people. The sovereign nature of God. He really is in control. And He can work everything for His glory and your good. That's how awesome He is. You know, I think that sometimes we don't understand the exclusive nature of God very well either. I know we say we do, but if we really understood that God was a God of, of, of unrivaled jealousy, that He will not compete with your latest hobby. He won't stand in line behind your, your favorite pastime. God, listen to me very carefully, God demands allegiance. We don't hear that preached much, I'll be honest with you. But when you come to this section of Isaiah, it's going to be a, a difficult time. Because we're talking about the jealousy of a righteous God. We don't hear that much, do we? But read Isaiah forty-nine to fifty-two and find out if God really will stand in line behind weekend football and your trips to the mall and the latest thing you got going on. Oh God, I'll get to you when I can. If we really understood how God demands our love exclusively, He won't share that with anyone. He won't share His glory with anyone. If we knew that, I'll tell you one thing: it changed. Listen very carefully. It changed how we treat our responsibilities in His kingdom. I always think it's amazing that we're never late for work, but it seems like we can rarely, barely get to church on time, you know? We can barely make our ministry on time, or we can hardly prepare for the next class we're teaching, or lighthouse we're leading, or, or things It's like God's kind of a second thought. After all, He's full of love and mercy. He'll understand. I didn't read the Word for a few days, God, but after all, you understand my boss, of course, now. That's a different story, God. You get what I'm saying? I know I'm probably treading on some toes here and you're probably thinking, man Todd, you're ready for a good year, aren't you? But I'm trying to show you something. Don't you see how we create versions of God, biased versions of God? to fit our life as opposed to saying my goodness God is a he's a righteous and jealous God he will not compete with my hobbies he won't stand in line for for, for a second or third place he demands complete loyalty and allegiance so God when I make a promise and a commitment you can count on me I'm there right, are you with me guys I think the commitment level at our church would would increase substantially as we understand the the exclusive nature of God you take all 14 of these traits That Isaiah lays out for us. If they begin to set themselves in our hearts. And we see God as he really is. You know what's going to happen? We're going to become a church. Consumed with the primary thing. You know what that is? Worshipping God. As He lays out His majesty, His timelessness, His transcendency, His truthfulness, His authenticity, His faithfulness, His omnipotence, His omniscience. As God lays those things out for us. As we see His greatness. Guess what? As we're captured by who He really is. Suddenly, all the secondary things that churches do, they become exactly that. Secondary. And suddenly the people of God gather for the sole purpose of worshiping this great God who is is amazing and awesome that leaves us speechless. That's the primary thing the body of Christ should do. Now listen very carefully. I probably stumped you there a little bit because you're thinking, Todd, I thought our job was to make disciples and reach the world. That is our secondary job. You're exactly right. The problem is, some folks take that missional aspect of church, of Christianity, and that's what it is. It's a missional aspect is something we do but it's man-centered it's what we can do to reach other men guess what that without the primary component becomes nothing more than just human philanthropy good efforts on our part to make sure that people hear this good news it's all man-centered the best kind of evangelism the most intense and effective outreach is when we are so consumed with God's character that who He is just overwhelms us that it naturally outflows from our life. That we live every day in all this God who would save us and wants to save you and you and you. Are you with me? Then it's not a program. I'll tell you something. If you're wondering why I would say to you, well, evangelism and missions, those are all secondary. I'll just tell you that this is proven in Matthew 28. This is a verse you need to hang your hat on. Matthew 28 is the, is the Great Commission, right? We're all aware of that. Go to all the world and make disciples. But guess what comes right before Matthew 28, 19 and 20? It's when the disciples fell down and worshipped Jesus. You ought to read Matthew 28. He said, I'll meet you on the mountain. They met him up there. They saw Him coming. And they fell down and worshipped Him. And then He said to them, Oh, by the way, I have all authority. Go and make disciples. And I'll tell you something. One of the reasons we don't evangelize and and do the secondary things very well is because we've made them primary. Building buildings, conducting services, doing programs. They have suddenly become the thing we do. Uh, I beg to disagree with that. The thing we do is worship the great God of the universe. When that becomes the focus of First Family Church, when God's character raptures us, you won't need The pastor, or your lighthouse leader, or your ministry leader, to talk you into serving, or whatever else, all you'll need is the breath of the Holy Spirit blowing in your heart, and you'll do whatever your great God says. That's what will happen at First Family if we let God be the God Isaiah tells us about. That's what. James McDonald did it first. Uh, first Harvest Bible Chapel. He was pastor there probably about 10-12 years. They had started their church in the Chicago metro area. It had grown rapidly. And they were out of space. They had been mobile for a while. They found a permanent place temporarily, if that's even possible. Temporarily permanent, you know. We can relate to that, can't we? And they were out of room, out of parking spaces... And uh, the Lord was doing a neat thing in their church. People were being saved and discipled. And so they agreed, their church leadership agreed, we've got to find better and different, more space. And they'd heard about a uh, Catholic church that was for sale. So they uh, talked to the Catholic church. They began to kind of put the feelers out and... He said, I did what every good pastor did. I got the elders to go on the property and pray that the Catholic church would become our church. And he said, we had the people drive by it and pray. He said, man, I heard they wanted to sell it, so we were doing all we could do. But he said, he said you know what? They weren't going to sell that to us. And he said, we just kept trying to get that church. He said, you know, it's not only that Catholics sometimes don't sell stuff. He said, they weren't going to sell to evangelicals either. He said, it was just a, kind of a dead end to begin with. He said, but we did all we could. He said, I found in that it was a process of about seven eight months he said that process I became very frustrated with God hey God you know we're, we're supposed to be doing your work here we're following your word I can't believe you won't give us a better place and he said I began to see God as an avenue to what I wanted he said when the deal finally closed that we weren't going to get that church no matter how much we prayed and marched on and claimed it he said I just found myself somewhat disillusioned he said, um, I sat down and I began to feel very convicted that um, I was allowing God to be you know, my tool to get what I wanted. He said, I confessed my sin. He said, God, I, I don't want a church like that. I don't want to be a pastor like that. He said, I want to be enamored and, and gripped by you no matter where we meet or what I drive or where I live. You, you are bigger than all of that. He said, I vowed that day never to get that attached to a building a piece of property. He said he had no sooner made that prayer and that commitment than he got a call from the Green family in Oklahoma City. The Green family were the founders and some of the beginning people of Hobby Lobby. They had an 85 acre warehousing unit in Chicago. And they were looking to give that to a ministry who would uh, develop it with similar uh, philosophy as their families and who would uh, make it better, and who would hold an evangelical type of ministry. They just fit them real well. And he heard about it, and so he said, Guys, uh, we ought to try to get this. It was a little out of where they wanted to be, but he felt like maybe God would lead them there. They prayed. Make long story short, they went down to Oklahoma City. They made their vision presentation, shared about their church. They got a call about a week, and they said, uh, James, you are down to the final two for the 85 acre property in Chicago. We want to give that away. He said, It's between you and Dr. Falwell of Liberty University. James McDonald says, Well, uh, we'll see what God does. About a month after that, he got a call from Dr. Falwell on his cell phone. He said, Hello, and this is Dr. Falwell. And James tells him the story. He says, You know, I was kind of like, Wow, I'm talking to, the, to, to, to a big dude, kind of like, you know, and they were laughing about that. And he said, I just want to call you and let you know that, that uh, I know you're in the running for the property as we are. I just want you to know that uh, they're going to give it to us tomorrow morning. I want you to hear it personally. I don't want you to think that there's anything wrong. But we're excited about it. I want you to know. James McDonald writes in the story. He says, A few months prior to that, I would have had some choice words perhaps. Some non-pastoral comments. Because we need to move. We've got a church to take care of. But He says, But you know, Because God had changed my heart. Because God is great regardless of, of anything around me. I said to Mr. Dr. Falwell, That's awesome. He said, now we can move on to what God's going to do for us. And I'm sure you're going to do what God wants you to do for that land. He said, you know what? I'm so glad for you. I'm excited to see what you do in our area. They kept talking a little bit, you know, cordially. Dr. Falwell asked about his church. And he said, after a few minutes, his tone began to change. And he said, you know, James, he said, I just come in thinking while we're talking. I've got all I can take in Lynchburg. My plate is full. He said, I'm 69 years old. He said, "Um, I think I'll go down there tomorrow morning and... I'll just tell them to give it to you. He says, I about dropped my cell phone, but uh, I didn't. And I'm in the background saying, you know, on the phone he's saying, well, sure, Dr. Fall, if you feel that's what God wants. And then, and he said that in the, uh, behind the scenes he's going, yes! <laughs> he's like, please, you know, that'd be great. And he's kind of shares his humorously. But anyway, uh, sure enough, Dr. Fall went down there and suggested to the Green family that they give it to Harvest Bible Chapel. Three days after that meeting, they got a call from the Green family. And Harvest Bible Chapel was given for $1, a $53 million, valued at $53 million, 85 acres, 285,000 square foot warehouse, and a 900 car parking garage. Pastor McDonald says that when he, when they moved into that property, he said, God, I'll give it away tomorrow. Because even this is nothing compared to you. And he said, I kept my commitment to just let God be the great God He is, no matter where I meet, what I drive, or where I live. When God's character causes him to act on our behalf like that, wonderful. But when His character causes him to use the bad things in our life to get us to the point He just it doesn't matter what's around us Isaiah is going to show us that what matters is a is a focused view of the great God who in spite of good or bad will be exactly that the great God of the universe and as we love him and get to know him guess what everything around us will seem insignificant and finite we'll be less traumatized as we're more awed with him that's where I want to be don't you I want to be a part of a church that's so focused on God that the primary thing we do is worship Him. So my evangelism and my service and the things that I give, they're just outflows. That's where I want to be. I hope you do too. That happens as we look this way and let God be who He says He is in His Word. Just, faithful, holy, all-powerful omniscient, all-knowing, timeless, and transcendent. When He is God, the rest is just details.